This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. Well, there are many voices out there today saying that science and religion are incompatible. And along the way, they've told a lot of stories about why they say that's the case. The problem is that the stories they tell simply aren't true. In fact, they're more about bashing Christianity than they are about science. So what are some of these myths that circulate so frequently and so inaccurately? We're going to find out today with Dr. Michael Newton Keyes, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and a former Fulbright scholar. Today, we'll be talking about his book called Unbelievable, Seven Myths About the History and Future of Science and Religion. Dr. Keyes, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Janet, I'm glad to be uh, in conversation with you today. Let's do this. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, let's start with this. Why do you think we so often hear this narrative that religion and science don't go together? When you look at history, it's obvious that that was not always a problem. So what, what gives with this narrative we hear? Yeah, you know, as you said, as we look at history, even my fellow historians of science uh, who are not religious agree with me that there is not an overwhelming, you know, story of of conflict, but rather um, cooperation at times, uh, sometimes just going different paths. But but the the narrative of conflict is it's a really noisy story that we get over and over from people like Bill Nye, the science guy. Uh, who's really Bill Nye the scientism guy, right. science, science used as a kind of a, as a front for his materialistic philosophy, according to which religion can't be in, in harmony with science, because science is about reason, religion is about non-reason, right. according to him. Right. So, you know, they, they already have the story they want to tell, regardless of what the history actually says. Right. So is it a matter of they start with their own premise and then they try to say negative things against religion because they're irreligious themselves? Is it a personal thing, in other words? Well, personal, and it's also a a widely spread worldview that's very dominant in uh, the media and and the universities. Um, And so uh, they are wanting to... I mean, look, some of the some, of the, some components of the stories they tell are obviously true, and I mean, a good myth is going to be a mixture of true and false components. So yeah. what I do is tease out the false part and show how that it vastly distorts the story that they're telling and gives an overall picture that's just not true. Exactly. So let's dive into these. You have, for example, your first myth that you discuss is the fact that pre-modern scholars in the Western tradition thought the universe was small and modern science displaced this church-sanctioned belief with a vast cosmos that revealed people to be insignificant. Now, what what are they really saying with this particular myth and who started this myth? I'll tell you who's saying it most noisily today. That's Bill Nye, the science guy. Yeah. Uh, and he likes to, like, he'll say, well, I'm just a speck compared to the 
to the solar system, and the solar system is just a speck compared to the galaxy and so on, up to the scale. Later on, he says, well, humans are important after all because we evolved this enormous brain that has enabled us to discover, well, things like the vastness of the universe and our place within it. So it is his own materialistic philosophy that he projects out there and tries, but others have added to that and said, oh, and there's a long history to this, because in pre-modern times, when Christianity was so strong, we thought the universe was small, but that's actually not true. Really? I show it, I show in my book, yeah, but even just going back to Hebrew literature, um, ancient Hebrew literature in the Old Testament, Psalm 8, one of the most quoted psalms by astronomers over four centuries, and I have four centuries of astronomy textbooks to show it, uh, astronomers quoting the psalm saying, yeah, when you first look out at the night sky, you feel really small. Mm-hmm. I mean, the psalmist himself felt that way. That's true. And yet, according to the psalmist, and yet God has crowned us with glory and honor and given us these privileges as, as his image bearers. So, so, the, so there's the modern, you know, hey, we're small, so we're insignificant part of it, and there's also a, a kind of a story to it. Well, if you want to be on the right side of history, you go with science, which discovered this largeness and displaced religious beliefs when that's just not in sync with real history. Yeah, no, it's not. What do they hope to gain, though, by pushing that myth? In other words, what, what are they aiming for in discrediting Christianity by making that claim? Well, Bill Nye wants to think that we're, our significance is what we make ourselves out to be. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Uh, we are autonomous creatures that, yeah, we're a cosmic accident, uh, shaped by chance and natural law, but hey, we're we're the masters of the universe. We're the ones who who call the shots, and there is no god who can tell me what to do. Yeah, he he's something else. It's kind of ironic though, because as he calls himself a speck, and then he also wants to be master of the universe. I mean, it's kind of inconsistent. <laughs> yeah. You can't be both at the same time, can you? If you're going to make yourself a god, you might want to be more than a speck in doing so. Well, that actually leads to my seventh myth, but we'll get there later, where once you have the significance void left by the early myths, once you buy into the sixth myth, it leaves you wide open to a horrendous deception. But talk to me about that later. Yeah, for, I will absolutely pick up on that. Well, let's go to number two. You talk about the medieval Catholic Church suppressing the growth of science. This is the second myth. And this caused mm-hmm. Europe to go into the Dark Ages. But you make the case there were no Dark Ages, that that's in and of itself a myth. Exactly. I mean, there was a period of European history called the Middle Ages, but they're not actually characterized as the Dark Ages, you know, as if, as if the Church was Darth Vader, theologically, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, say, leave it to me, you know, I'll take care of everything. And So, yeah, what you find in the Middle Ages is, you know, of course, civilization had to recover from the fall of Rome. There was chaos for a while because there was just a lot of fighting and bloodshed. But eventually a new civilization arose, and Christians were at the forefront of building that, out of the Germanic peoples that invaded Rome, Christianity, and uh, they forged a civilization in which education was important. Right. For example, guess who invented the university? Christians yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. Uh, secular universities, that's a, that's a 19th century invention. That's a latecomer. So, and, you know, where is, what has been the most long-term home for 
the teaching and discovery of scientific truth? Well, the university. Sure. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. They don't mention that. But but again, isn't it going back and trying to say Christians are about suppressing truth? They're about putting us back in the dark ages. I mean, that seems to be the emotional component of that myth. Christianity will make you backward. That's kind of the unsaid truth that the world myth here that they're pushing. Yeah. Um, Lewis C.S. Lewis likes to call this chronological snobbery, yes. that you know, we're better than them in the past, we know better because we, we live later and we've learned more. Well, yeah, certainly we have learned some things. Um, you know, science today is way beyond what it was in the Middle Ages, but look, given the time, what they had available, uh, they made some very important discoveries, and the, the, the basic methodology of how you go about doing science was worked out, um, you know, during the Middle Ages, working, of course, on earlier, you know, stuff like Plato and Aristotle, who were not uh, Christians, obviously, pagans, but they still, pagans can still discover certain things about the natural order, but their worldview is going to subtly sh- uh, misshape some of their conclusions. And sure. so Christianity reworked that and came up with a better foundation that made science, I mean, look, it's pro- science has been massively proliferating for centuries now through in the Christian West, which I know is... Christianity is fading in its influence in many ways in, in culture, but uh, we still are living off of that cultural capital that traces back to the Judeo-Christian tradition. Of course, of course. So it seems part of what we need to contend with is eradicating references to the phrase Dark Ages, right? And, and to get that part of it right. Yeah, I mean, you, you can still talk about the term, but just show how it's not an accurate label and talk about what really happened back then. So that's all a part of education. Well, it is. And there's so many other myths that I want to get to, and we're going to work our way all through these seven myths that are outlined in your book, Seven Myths About the History and Future of Science and Religion. My guest is Dr. Michael Newton Keyes. His book is called Unbelievable. We're going to come back and dive into more about it when we return on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Did you know that over 18 million babies have been aborted worldwide since January 1st? Every single one of these babies died during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why isn't the world declaring these babies as lost? Here's Dan Steiner, the president of Preborn, a ministry dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through ultrasound. I sense God's broken heart over the issue of abortion. You see, he sees every little baby that's being formed in the mother's womb, and it breaks his heart to see when the lifetime that he has planned for them is taken from them violently so often. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you help show that these babies' lives are not forgotten? Preborn is there for women in crisis who want to make the right choice, but society tells them that a preborn baby is not a human life. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn shines light into a mother's womb, introducing her to the beautiful life growing inside of her. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. 
the cost of one ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds cost $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I'm going to keep my baby, and I'm going to be a great mom. Every baby's life is important. Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and Preborn in the Cause for Life? All gifts are tax deductible. And when you donate, you'll receive an ultrasound picture, along with stories of other babies' lives that were spared. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Glad you're here and glad to be talking with Dr. Michael Newton Keyes. His book is called Unbelievable Seven Myths About the History and Future of Science and Religion. And this is kind of interesting, Dr. Keyes, when we were discussing the misnomer of the Dark Ages. Somebody else who has talked about the Dark Ages is someone you talk about in the book, celebrity astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Now, you mentioned him in the cat, uh, the myth, the third myth about flat Earth. And, and this myth that you've mentioned in the book is that because of church-induced ignorance, these people are saying that European intellectuals believe, believed in this flat earth until Columbus proved that the earth was round. But what is the truth? What, what, what really went on? What, how is this a myth? Yeah. So the story that the vast majority of all my students over 25 years of teaching college astronomy and biology, the story that, you know, Columbus proved the earth was round, that's just not true. And a lot of, the, a lot of my students were actually raised uh, and educated in Christian schools, but didn't realize that there was an anti-Christian slant to that story. Wow. Once it's entered into the educational system, it, it's a, you know repeated without critical attention. So, okay, when Columbus was making his pitch to make the journey, he had to get funding, of course, and he, the debate at that time was not about the shape of the Earth. It was about the size of the Earth and the size of oceans in relation to land masses. So that's where the debate was. Christians in the Middle Ages knew it was round if they were educated. In fact, they were, education was not just for a tiny elite like in ancient times, but there were hundreds of thousands of university-educated uh, people, largely Christian, of course, who had at their disposal arguments for Earth's roundness, such as, well, during a lunar eclipse, as you watch the shadow of the Earth cast upon the moon as it moves across the moon, that edge of the shadow is curved, which indicates Earth is round, which is, you know, making that shadow. Yeah. So they were able to pull this out and, you know, about a half dozen other arguments based on evidence that you can see with your own eyes to conclude the Earth is spherical. Ironically, many of my students knew only a couple of these at most, and, and many of them uh, believed in the round Earth simply because of the authority of teachers pronouncing it. That's not what education is about. It's about knowing why you believe what you believe on the basis of good evidence. Exactly. So who's, who's in the dark ages, you know? Is it students who just accept, like, say, the Darwinian perspective because it's shoved down their throat by the textbooks and leaving out all the arguments against it? That's a dark approach to education. So I'm up all about freedom, expression of ideas, and full exposure of students to arguments for and against all the major positions. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, and you know, when you talk about flat earthers, this is still an insult. A lot of these people will hurl at Christians. You're just a flat earther. I mean, without any evidence whatsoever. You never asked me if I believe the earth was round. But why are you just yeah. throwing out that? You know, again, it's back to this idea that if you're a Christian, you have to be anti-intellectual. They want that to be true. We're the smart ones. You people are dumb and right. backwards. So that's part of it. And there is a tiny minority of people who believe in a flat earth today, and they have these kooky conferences <laughs> where Christianity is put out there as if it's the basis for it, which is extremely annoying because I don't know. If, I've, I've only known one or two Christians in my entire life who, who actually believe in a flat earth, and then I've talked with them about it. You know, like, hey, you, you need to give this up, and here's the reason, you know. Right. Um, so it's a, such a tiny minority, and, then, uh, and I think a lot of those people are, uh, I, I question their sincerity, too. Uh, in fact, some couple of NBA players later said that they were just joking about it when they said they believed uh. in a flat earth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just kidding, just kidding. I don't really believe in a flat earth. No, no, that's true. That's true. There is a very small minority of people who do still believe that for some unknown reason. But you're right, you have to refute yeah. that. What, now, what about Bruno? This is another myth, the fourth myth that you discuss. When the Catholic Church burned Giordano, Bruno at the stake, they say he was a martyr for science. You say, actually, his execution was primarily for theology logical reasons. So what's the truth about Bruno? Yeah, he uh, he definitely was a heretic. Of course, no one uh, that I know who's a Christian, and most Christians through history, are in favor of burning anybody, regardless of their idea. So that was a huge mistake to burn the guy. Right. But he was a heretic on the, on the basis of his rejection of the person and work of Jesus. He thought Jesus was one more migrating soul from planet to planet, in an infinite universe of infinite number of planets, and that that God had no choice in creation, which is completely in uh, contrast with what Scripture says, yeah. and that God had insistently, almost like OCD, create nonstop so that the universe is an expression of His greatness. So for Bruno, instead of Christ being the, the, the full expression of God in human form, in, in the universe itself was like the Messiah to, to Bruno. He mm-hmm. sub- instead of Christ being the mediator, it was the universe that was the mediator, and Christ was just one more migrating soul, which is clearly heretical. Yeah, that's bizarre. That's very bizarre. So why do they say that he was a martyr for science? Where do they even get that? Well, he part of uh, his soul migration theory, uh, which is has an ancient pedigree, by the way, of you know, souls going from body to body to body, from planet to planet. Um, well, it involved the idea that there's a, a vast universe with with planets going around other other suns. And of course, at the time, there really wasn't scientific evidence for that. But later, we did discover scientific evidence for that. So it kind of made him look like, wow, this guy discovered something uh, that later, you know, modern science discovered. So it's like a you know the prophet of of the the of a universe with many, many habitable planets. So it looks scientific, but his reasons for believing it weren't, weren't credible even by the scientific standards of his own day, wow. and certainly not by our standards today, which is you know, more rigorous scientific standards for what counts right. as a scientific argument. So it, it had kind of the look and feel of, oh, he was persecuted for his belief in extraterrestrial life and, and, and so on, and many worlds. But it was primarily the philosophical and theological drive behind it that I think was really uh, a problem. And of course, the church, the Catholic Church, was in the mid- in the middle of the kind of Reformation. They were much more defensive and and 
liable to overreach in, in dealing with heretics because of the, you know, dealing with Protestants. Right, right. That is fascinating. Wow. So now I know we're not going to have time to get to every single myth. People will hopefully buy your book and will read it for themselves because it's really fascinating. But when we jump ahead to myth seven, this one actually very much intrigued me because the myth is if and when we discover or encounter extraterrestrial life, then that will be the discovery that deals the death blow to Christianity. And I I laugh at that because I'm thinking, how would that ever happen? But where did this one come from? Where did this myth come from? And and how does it connect to the earlier myth we were discussing? Yeah, if you buy into the six earlier myths, you know, as if they're true, well, that leaves a huge significant void like, you know, we're not special and, you know, religion is dumb and so we're going to have to find significance somewhere else, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, then that leaves you wide open to this final myth of science and religion in my book. And the myth goes like this. In other words, it's a new way to get significance without God. And here's how it goes. Any, Any alien capable of making the trip to Earth because of the vast distances of space and the highly unlikely situation of nearby habitable planets, because we've already done a pretty thorough survey at at the 4,000 planets we've discovered beyond our solar system, not any one of them is really well suited for advanced life like us. So you'd have to have advanced technology to get here. So if they they seem to arrive, then then atheists and agnostics are saying that these creatures would have godlike superintelligence. I mean, Dawkins actually says godlike superintelligence, technology like magic, and Harry Potter, and moral spiritual insights that would trigger global religious reorientation. It sounds scientific, and some parts of it are kind of scientific, but, but you, can't, you can't just extrapolate from, you know, a given technology to, to, like, Harry Potter magic, because there are certain limits to natural law. You can't make technology overcome the laws of nature. Right. So that's... And, and furthermore, what's really the most... Uh, I mean, a jaw-dropping thing about this whole thing is, if the devil himself appeared on this planet as an alien savior, posing as this alien savior, Richard Dawkins and other like-minded atheists would have no way of helping people distinguish between the natural interpretation, alien, versus the supernatural devil interpretation of such an appearance. Exactly. Based on their own premises. They have no way to, you know, they're, in other words, Latter-day materialism is wide open to the occult, and that is weird. Oh, yeah, that is an excellent point. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. They don't exactly have grounds for discernment, do they? If they were being supernaturally deceived, they would have no idea. They would just, you know, take the alien's uh, word for it, I suppose. But that that doesn't make them look intelligent. That makes them look foolish. Yeah, I mean, of course, they're going to say there is no supernatural. Obviously, we know you think that. You're atheist, you know, so... But if you're telling us that this, that if ET arrives, they'll have technology indistinguishable from magic. Well, what if the devil shows up looking like ET or posing that way? You would take it to be ET, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you would have no way to distinguish between whether this creature is really natural or supernatural. That's a good point. I'm still stuck on this idea that if supernatural, you know, extraterrestrial life showed up in uh, here, they already know that these would be highly evolved beings, super intelligent. I mean, how you, you haven't met them. How do you know they would be that way? It's oh, just making no, it, it up as you go, it seems like. Yeah. Like, and of course, these aliens are created in the minds of men, yeah. uh, particularly like Dawkins. And so, and oh, by the way, they would certainly, these aliens would, uh, if supernatural looking aliens, whatever, 
they would certainly uh, badmouth the biblical God, because isn't that the, the idea that's held back uh, the growth of science on planet Earth, and aliens are here to enlighten us, right? Yes, <laughs> right. So, remind you of anyone, you know, badmouthing the biblical God, and and claiming to to be the, you know, kind of like a Messiah figure. It does indeed. Maybe they'll come in the form of a serpent. You never know <laughs> if they ever show up. <laughs> Actually, there's a common misconception about, um, about uh, you know, if you look at the scriptural references to, to demons and, and Satan, it makes references often to them appearing as um, angels of light. True. And yes. And very attractive. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Well, you got to read the book. Unbelievable. Dr. Michael Newton Keyes with us. So good to have you here, Dr. Keyes. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you can go to unbelievablemyths.com for more information. Myth plural. Sounds great. Thanks again for being with us. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Meffer today. 2 Corinthians one twenty tells us, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And that is such an encouraging verse because Scripture is full of God's promises. The question is, how do we take His promises to heart and incorporate those promises into our prayer lives? We're going to talk about that today with Linda Evans Shepherd. She is the president of Right to the Heart Ministries and author of the book we'll be discussing called Praying God's Promises, the life-changing power of praying the scriptures. And Linda, it's wonderful to have you with us. How are you? It is uh, wonderful to be here, and I'm doing great. That's fantastic. Well, we're really glad you are here. What is it about God's promises that you think matters so much when it comes to your prayer life? Because this is a really, I think, important topic for Christians to understand why God's promises matter when you're praying. Well, you know, we always say, oh, how do I know the will of God? Well, hello, there are over 5,400 promises of God in the Bible, and we can get a hint about God's will for our lives and for different situations by connecting with one of those promises and then agreeing with it with a yes in prayer. Yeah. That's so true. Fifty Over 5,400. That's incredible. I had no idea it was that high. <laughs> It's amazing. And, you know, it says in Psalms 145.3, the Lord keeps his promises. He is gracious in all he does. So God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Amen. He certainly is. Now, when you talk about praying the scriptures for some Christians who might be listening, they may be saying, I'm not really sure what that means. How do I pray the scriptures? Isn't prayer supposed to be something spontaneous between me and the Lord? What do I do when I'm trying to pray the scriptures? How does that work? Well, there are different kinds of prayer. There are the kinds of prayer we call out for help, and many of us probably do that daily. Yes, I do. <laughs> <And> there are <laughs> prayers where we intercede about situations, and one of the ways we can intercede is by connecting with the promise. And so, for example, what I did in this book, I had the promises in alphabetical order, and then I, um, I list them. In fact, we'll, just go, we'll go to one on strength, for example. Uh, here's a promise for strength. It says, um, he gives power to the weak and strength 
to the powerless. So if you're feeling powerless, turn that back into a prayer. I agree. So you say, yes, I agree, Lord. Help me whenever I am weak and powerless. I know you will give me your power and strength. Good. And so now you've taken God's word and you've prayed it back to him in agreement. That's a very powerful prayer. Well, it is. You know, I think one of the things a lot of us struggle with is sometimes knowing what to pray. I think this goes back to the word saying that the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to say sometimes. But also, there is an objective element, it seems, to what you're saying that should help us think biblically. Is that also part of your thinking, that as you are using the promises of God as you are praying to Him, it's helping you think more biblically than you might otherwise? Exactly. You're praying in the will of God. And I like how it's uh, worded in Second Corinthians one twenty. It says, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. Amen. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. And so it's all about, it's all about us saying yes to God, whether it be for salvation. God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die for me. Yes. God, I give you my life. Yes. God, your Holy Spirit may flow through me. Yes. God, I agree with your promise for me about peace or joy or about strength or courage. Yes. And so it's part of that back and forth relationship that God wants to have with us. He wants to give us a yes, and he wants us to say yes back to him. Right. Agreed. So, Linda, you, I know, tell a story in the intro of your book where you're talking about a sick friend and how this has kind of played out in your own life. Can you share some of your experiences with praying God's promises back to him and what sorts of results you've had from doing that? Well, exactly. Well, in this case, here I am. I'm, I'm far away from home. I'm 2,000 miles away from home attending a conference with a friend. And on the way back to the airport, my friend grabs her chest and looks as if she is having a stroke. I rush her to the hospital. It turned out she had the flu, not a stroke, but they pumped her with pain meds and dumped her unconscious back in my rental car. Now we had no place to go. (laughs) Oh, my. We were in trouble. I was able to get back into the bed and breakfast we had been in, and we got back. And then I started to come down with the flu. Now we're in really big trouble. And so as I was contemplating the situation, what came to me but Psalms 91? Mm. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And it goes on to talk about all of this wonderful protection. And so I begin to pray this. I begin to agree with it. What do you know? My symptoms left the next morning. My friend woke up renewed and refreshed. We got on the plane. We got back home. And then the flu came back to both of us, but not until we walked in the door. I'm not too excited that the flu came back. But the Lord got us through that as I agreed with his word and his promises. Wow, that is wild. So you got a little interim break from the flu as you were praying through scripture. That's incredible. I took a a vacation from the flu, (laughs) (laughs) only through the promise of God. Goodness. Well, and I would imagine there are a lot of people listening who would say, I wouldn't have thought to do that. How was it that your heart was prepared to go in that direction and to go to the Psalms in a moment like that? 
oh, well, that was pure desperation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, one, the wonderful thing about desperation, it, it gives us to call upon the name of the Lord. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did. And uh, Psalm 91 is so great. I have to tell you this story, too, Janet. One of my girlfriends called me and said that her daughter, her, her daughter's little car had been hit by an 18-wheeler on a freeway in St. Louis. Oh, no. And her daughter not only walked away from the accident, she drove away. The accident happened at a high speed, 70 miles an hour. Mm. And I said to her, Rhonda, you were praying Psalms 91 over your family. And she said, oh, I don't think so. And I said, no, I think you were. And then she said, wait a minute. And she looked it up, and she went, oh, yes, I actually sing that over my family every day. Oh, wow. And so I could tell from the miracle what she had been, what scripture she had been praying. That is amazing. Now, of course, just because we pray God's promises, we're not always going to get an answer like that. So what happens when someone says, well, I've been praying God's promises. I had a situation. I was praying in this way and I was applying the right scripture and the answer was no, or things didn't turn out the way that I thought they might. How are we to view that answer to prayer in light of what God says in his word? Well, I think we have to remember that we don't control God. Right. He is um, not our subject. We are not his boss. Right. And sometimes the answer to a promise is a greater miracle than the exact thing we are praying for. And he may say no to us for the greater miracle. Mm. And For example, in my own life, um, my daughter, who was a, a lovely disabled young lady who lived for 28 years after a car crash, um, in those last days of her life, we were praying promises over her, mm. and the Lord took her home. And that was, that was hard, but at the same time, one of the things that Laura and I did in her last hours on earth is we went through all the promises of heaven talking about how she loved the Lord, how, she, how Jesus was her Savior, how He was waiting for her in heaven, and reading the promises of heaven together, which are in the book, too, yeah. and knowing when she passed, when she went from this world into heaven, she arrived to heaven no longer disabled. Oh, wow. She arrived to heaven completely healed. It was the greater miracle. It wasn't answered exactly the way I wanted God to answer the prayer, but my prayer was answered. Yes. And I think sometimes when we don't understand the why, we have to go into a deeper level of trust. Lord, I trust you. Like Job, I trust you. Even if you slay me, yeah. I will trust you. Exactly. Linda, hang on a moment. We do need to go to a quick break. Linda Evans Shepherd with us. Her book is called Praying God's Promises. We'll be back right after this. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. 
services. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Great to have you with us and great to be speaking with Linda Evans Shepherd. Her book is called Praying God's Promises, The Life-Changing Power of Praying the Scriptures. Linda, you were making such a good point before we went to the break, and I just want to express to you my heartfelt condolences on the loss of your daughter. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. But the story that you were sharing about how Prior to your daughter dying, you were going through these promises of God. That just points out how important it is for us to know the promises of God. As you said at the beginning, there were over 5,400 promises of God in Scripture. What about the importance of knowing those promises and even memorizing those promises so that when you do need to pray those promises, they're right there and you know them? Absolutely. You know, that's why we're supposed to be in the Word. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. When we're in the Word, when we know the Word, when we have a problem, when we need that peace that that passes understanding, we can call on those promises and pray them back to God. We can say yes to the promises that God has said yes to us. Yes. Now, do you have a particular section of Scripture, a particular passage that you tend to pray more than others? Do you have a favorite? Well, I, I love all of them. They're all my favorite. But I think my very favorite, I'm going to read it to you, it's from Numbers. And it goes like this. It's that beautiful blessing promise in Numbers. The Lord will bless you and watch over you. The Lord will smile on you and be kind to you. The Lord will look on you with favor and give you peace. And, you know, the reason I love this promise so much is it reminds me that God is watching over me and that the Lord wants to bless me. And he wants to smile on me and be kind to me. And when I'm going through a hard time and I think back at this promise, then I know he is with me and I know that the peace that he has for me 
can be mine when I say yes right back to him. That's great. That is so great. You know what passage comes to my mind, and I love them all as well. It's hard to choose one passage of Scripture that would be any above any other passage of Scripture because they're all wonderful. But I think of Ephesians chapter 1, because in there you have the praise for the spiritual blessings in Christ, and Paul praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then goes back, when you get into the later section of the chapter there, he says, you know, he prays for the church. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So what's also interesting to me in that passage is that we can pray for other people with scripture and the promises of God. Do you do that as well when you are interceding for other people, maybe praying for an unbeliever? You go to passages like that. Has that helped you too? Absolutely. In fact, I think my very favorite chapter in Praying God's Promises is my chapter on children. Oh, yes. Because we parents (laughs) need to be praying over our kids. I have a millennial son. Oh, God bless you. Yes, yes. (laughs) Thank you. I can relate. Yes, yes. (laughs) He's a good kid. But you know what? Um, We have to be praying over our kids and to know that there are promises regarding our children, like like this one, Proverbs 14.26. There is strong trust in the fear of the Lord, and his children will have a safe place. Just knowing that if we have a strong trust in God, that our children will have a safe place. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many others, uh, even more exciting than that one, uh, one after another, that we can pray over our kids. And why wouldn't we be? In fact, uh, in my book, I talk about how Karen used to pray Psalm 72 over her son uh, when uh, he was a little one. He was, I guess, a handful. And so she picked Psalms 70. Um, 72, I believe, to pray over him, because that was the prayer that uh, King David prayed over his son Solomon. Oh, great. Little did she know that her son would grow up to fulfill everything in that psalm. Mm. Uh, he became, uh, it talks about, you know, how he, uh, he, that David want, wants his son to be someone who will help the poor, and that people will pray for all day long, and that will uh, reach out to the hurting and all of this. Her son became a pastor who has outreaches to build water wells in Haiti and helps work with uh, children who've been trafficked and so forth and so on. And, and his church loves him and they pray for him all day long. Oh, that's great. And so what she began to pray over her son for 40 years came to be. That's incredible. And you have so many good stories like that. What about in times of trouble? When you mention kids, and immediately I always think about how much I pray for my kids' safety and that the Lord would protect them. And I'm doing that all the time like any mother would, any Christian mother would. What about, though, when you are in a trial, you're suffering something, you're in danger in some way, something along those lines, what are some of your go-to passages to pray through in those times? Well, I think my favorite is Psalms 50, 15, which says, Then call on me when you are in trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will give me glory. Amen. (laughs) Amen. That's great. That's great. We can call on a God who wants to rescue us. And I think the reason why he, he wants to do that is it's just all about that relationship, building that relationship that he is building with us, and we are building with him. It's a back-and-forth thing. He wants us to call on him, and this promise says he wants to rescue us. 
That's right. You tell a story actually in that chapter on troubles about your friend Kathy. Do you remember that story where she wanted to believe God's promises, but she was really mad at her little two-year-old daughter? I thought that was a really interesting story. Yes, um, that's exactly right. And she she was having trouble being a patient mom and uh, being upset also with her husband. And she began to, uh, I think she was praying Ephesians 3, 20, 21. Uh, if he can bring glory through my story of... I'm looking for that scripture now. I don't, I don't see it off the bat. But, but that, but she began to pray that scripture over her daughter, and it caused her to find peace because she was actually abusive to her daughter, mm-hmm. and she began to find peace over being an abusive mom, and she quit being an abusive mom, and she began to find peace over her marriage. And now today, she and her husband have a wonderful marriage. That's great. Well, and that speaks, doesn't it, to the power of the Word to change us. As we are using His Word, His Word does not return to Him void. It makes a difference in our lives. How have you found this way of praying change you, Linda, when you have been praying some of God's promises? What sort of effect has it had on you as a Christian? Well, it's easy to get caught up in the anxiety and in the worry uh, and then, I mean, uh, one of my friends is going through a very uh, large difficulty right now, and so together we've been, we've been looking at scriptures about how God wants to rescue her, about how God wants to give her peace, that God's love is for her. And I'm telling you, it is making all the difference. She's gone from someone who could not get out of bed to someone who now has hope. Because she knows that even though she's going through this trial, God is for her because the Word says so. God loves her, the Word says so, and that He is going to see her through this time. And that applies to each one of us because we all have trials and troubles. We're not yet in heaven, are we, Janet? No, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Now, that's that's really an important reminder. And I also was really touched when you had this section on the presence of God. That's such a basic thing, but there are just times in my life where I say, Lord, I just want to remember that you're here, that you hear me, that you love me, even if I'm not feeling you per se in this particular moment. I know that your word says that you're with me. And I think you quoted from the the Great Commission, where Jesus said, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I think no matter how long I've been a Christian, that is always a comfort to say, Lord, no matter how I'm feeling today, I know that you're with me because you promised that you would be. Well, that's it exactly. And God's promises on his presence remind us, because it's not that God ever withdraws his presence from us once we become his children. Once we say, I need you, please forgive me of my sins, I want to follow you. His presence never withdraws from us, but we forget. Yeah. And so these promises remind us, oh, yeah, God is with me even right now. That's right. That's right. What kind of advice would you give to Christians on waiting for God to answer prayer? Because that's another problem we sometimes have. Lord, answer right now. And he doesn't always <laughs> answer immediately. You know, actually, I think that's really about trust. And I think that the trust is the number one thing God wants from us. God wants us to trust Him no matter what. And so sometimes I think He allows troubles in our life just to show us, I've got it, I've got you, it's going to be okay, you can trust me. 
and I think it's the one thing that we don't want to do. Yeah. We just want the situation to change. It's true. And we just want to be able to say, okay, God, it's okay now. You don't have to bother anymore. It's okay. Yeah, I love that. Well, we're out of time, but Praying God's Promises is the name of the book. Linda Evans Shepherd with us, and it was so good to talk to you, Linda. God bless you, and keep on praying. Thank you, Janet. All right, God bless. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you for listening today to Janet Meffer Today, and we'll see you next time.